The world headlines. N. Korea confirms test of missile capable of striking Guam. Seoul, South Korea, 8th, North Korea confirmed Monday it test launched an intermediate range ballistic missile capable of reaching the U.S. territory of Guam, the North's most significant weapon launch in years, as Washington plans steps to show its commitment to its Asian allies. Sunday's launch could be a prelude to bigger provocations by North Korea such as nuclear and long-range missile tests that pose a direct threat to the U.S. mainland, as the North tries to further pressure the Biden administration to win sanction relief or international recognition as a legitimate nuclear state. The official Korean Central News Agency said the purpose of the test was verifying the overall accuracy of the Wasong-12 missile that is being deployed in its military. North Korea said the missile was launched toward waters off its east coast on a high angle to prevent flying over other countries. It gave no further details. According to South Korean and Japanese assessments, the missile flew about 800 kilometers, 497 miles, and reached a maximum altitude of 2,000 kilometers, 1,242 miles, before landing in waters between the Korean Peninsula and Japan. The reported flight details make it the most powerful missile North Korea has tested since 2017, when the country launched Wasong-12 and longer-range missiles in a torrid run of weapons firings to acquire an ability to launch nuclear strikes on U.S. military bases in Northeast Asia and the Pacific and even the American homeland. KCNA published two sets of combination photos, one purporting to show the missile rising from a launcher and soaring into space, and the other showing North Korea and nearby areas that it said were photographed from space by a camera installed at the missile's warhead. The Associated Press could not independently verify the authenticity of the images. Omicron and long COVID, scientists have theories on the cause and who's at risk. Even as the number of new COVID-19 cases in the U.S. is dropping, Hundreds of thousands of Americans are still testing positive every day. More than 28 million new cases have been reported since Omicron emerged in the U.S. just two months ago, and the variant now drives 99.9% of cases, as of January 22, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Thanks to vaccines, boosters, and increasingly available treatments, most people who get infected today won't end up in the hospital or die. A big question, however, looms over the survivors, what about long COVID? Long COVID is a condition that arises after acute infection and often includes shortness of breath, fatigue, and brain fog, but can also involve a wide range of debilitating problems in the heart, brain, lungs, gut, and other organs. According to the World Health Organization's working definition, long COVID usually occurs three months after symptomatic COVID-19 begins and lasts for at least two months. Sometimes, the symptoms just never go away after the initial infection. Occasionally, they appear months after recovery or after an asymptomatic case. This means that if you've recovered from COVID-19, you're not necessarily in the clear. No one knows exactly how many people have or had long COVID. Estimates so far are wildly disparate, in part because researchers define the condition differently and because the people seeking care may only be a small portion of those affected, said Nahid Bedelia, an associate professor at Boston University School of Medicine. Studies on the conservative end have found that 10 to 20 percent of COVID-19 survivors get long COVID, while others report 50 percent. Scientists have proposed numerous hypotheses to explain long COVID's myriad symptoms since research began in earnest after the first wave of cases in 2020. 
Early suspects included a weakened immune system, widespread inflammation, and even low sex hormone levels. Trump facing legal, political headwinds as he eyes comeback. As he prepared to tee off at one of his Florida golf courses, a fellow player introduced Donald Trump as the 45th President of the United States. 45th and 47th, Trump responded matter-of-factly, before hitting his drive. The quip, a moment of levity on the links captured on shaky cell phone video, was a reminder that the former president often has another presidential run on his mind. But the declaration belied the growing challenges he's confronting as a series of complex legal investigations ensnare Trump, his family, and many associates. The probes, which are unfolding in multiple jurisdictions and consider everything from potential fraud and election interference to the role he played in the January 6 insurrection, represent the most serious legal threat Trump has faced in decades of an often litigious public life. They're intensifying as a new poll from the Associated Press and ORC Center for Public Affairs Research found Trump's iron grip on the GOP may be starting to loosen. His popularity among Republicans is declining somewhat, with 71% saying they have a favorable opinion of Trump compared with 78% in a September 2020 APNRC USA Facts poll. But the new poll shows only a narrow majority of Republicans, 56%, want him to run for president in 2024. The poll found that 44% of Republicans do not want Trump to run. Despite the legal and political headwinds, those around Trump describe him as looking to the future and emboldened by a sense of invincibility that has allowed him to recover from devastating turns, including two impeachments, that would have ended the careers of other politicians. Instead of receding from the spotlight, he's teasing a comeback run for president as he escalates his attacks against those investigating him and his company. Republicans redistricting maps are motivated entirely by race, not politics. Although the phrase, all politics is local, is usually attributed to Tip O'Neill Jr., a former Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, the aphorism probably originated in the February 1932 Associated Press column, Politics at Random, when the Washington bureau chief, Byron Price, wrote, all politics is local politics. As valid as Price's summarization of inside the Beltway politics may be, there is probably a more accurate way to describe the all-American sport of civic power brokering, all politics is racial. Over the last quarter century, white voters have overwhelmingly identified with the GOP while every other racial and ethnic group, black, Hispanic and Asian American voters, consistently identify with the Democratic Party. This unwavering reality reduces the machinations of each political party to a game of demographic mathematics, especially in racially diverse parts of the country, where one trism dominates local politics. When non-white people can't vote, Republicans win. Perhaps the starkest example of this racial divide is Alabama, where white people make up 69% of the population and are 89% of the Republican electorate. By comparison, the state is 27% African-American, 80% of whom identify as Democrat. Six of the seven Democrats in the Alabama Senate are black, as are 26 of the 27 Democratic members of the House. In 2022, Kenneth Paschal became the first black person to represent the Republican Party in the Alabama state legislature since Reconstruction. Contrary to what Price would say, politics is not local here. In Alabama, regardless of the location, white voter is synonymous with Republican and black means Democrat. Perhaps this reality is why last Monday, a federal court threw out the state's congressional map that disenfranchised black voters across the state. 
The three-judge panel explained that the congressional redistricting plan created by Alabama's Republican-controlled legislature. Some predict Justice Breyer's exit will deepen polarization on Supreme Court. Associate Justice Stephen Breyer's decision to retire this year won't change the number of conservative or liberal justices on the Supreme Court, but some experts predict his departure could drive a deeper wedge between them. Breyer will step down this summer after nearly three decades on the nation's highest bench. Though a reliable liberal vote in culture war disputes that draw headlines and public attention, the 83-year-old justice is also a conciliatory figure, more centrist than some of his colleagues on the left or right, and perhaps more willing to strike a compromise. Even though President Joe Biden will nominate a successor who will similarly side with the court's liberals in big cases, observers said a new member can change the tenor of the dynamics between the nine justices. The interaction between them can help or hurt Chief Justice John Roberts' efforts to insulate the court from the political rancor pervasive elsewhere. I think Roberts is going to have fewer people on the liberal wing to work with, said Michael McConnell, director of the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law School and a former federal appeals court judge. And so I think it's quite possible that it's going to lead to a more polarized court. President Donald Trump's three nominees gave conservatives a six-member supermajority on the high court tilting it the furthest to the right in decades. That majority has signaled it is prepared to undermine the court's landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision on abortion in coming months while limiting the ability of states to regulate handguns. The court announced this month that the justices will soon reconsider affirmative action and a 2016 decision that allows universities to consider the race of prospective students as one factor in admissions. Biden admin condemns North Korea missile launch, seek serious and sustained diplomacy with DPRK. The Biden administration is seeking serious and sustained diplomacy with North Korea as Pyongyang ramps up their longest-range missile testing since 2017. Senior U.S. officials Sunday described the rogue regime's latest moves as concerning and increasingly destabilizing. North Korea on Sunday fired what appeared to be its most powerful missile since Biden took office. North Korea tests more missiles in January than all of 2021, including most powerful one in years the Japanese and South Korean militaries said the missile was launched on a high trajectory, apparently to avoid the territorial spaces of neighbors, and reached a maximum altitude of 2,000 kilometers, or 1,242 miles, and traveled 800 kilometers, or 497 miles, before landing in the sea. The flight details suggest a North Korea tested its longest-range ballistic missile since 2017, when it flew intercontinental ballistic missiles that demonstrated the potential to reach the U.S. We condemn the missile launches by the DPRK, a senior Biden administration official said Sunday, noting that they violate Security Council resolutions and pose a threat to the international community. They are destabilizing and they do increase the risk to the region, as well as to our deployed forces and our allies, the official said. We are committed to a diplomatic approach and continue to call on the DPRK to join us on this path. The official said that the Biden administration's approach is designed for practical, calibrated efforts to address security concerns that we have and that our allies have. Australia urged to spend more on COVAX program amid criticisms of vaccine diplomacy. Australia has distributed 18 M doses of COVID-19 vaccine to neighboring countries but is being urged to dedicate money and resources to COVAX, the global vaccination mechanism, so that the world's least inoculated countries can access vaccines. Australia's vaccine diplomacy,
focusing on bilateral donations to the Pacific and Southeast Asia has come at the expense of commitments to the global COVAX facility, to which it has committed zero doses and only $130 million. The Delta variant emerged from highly unvaccinated India and Omicron from Africa, which has the world's lowest vaccination rates. With major new variants detected, on average, every four months, there are concerns that persistently laggard vaccination rates in the developing world will allow new variants to keep emerging, sparking new global waves and prolonging the pandemic. Tim Costello, spokesperson for the End COVID for All initiative, said bilateral vaccine donations prioritized a charity model over a justice model for vaccine access. The problem with distributing vaccines bilaterally is it becomes a charity model. It comes out of the rich countries buying five times as many doses as they need, and then looking generous, saying, we will donate these to you. The COVAX facility was designed to be a justice model, so that people in poorer countries had equitable access to the vaccination that everybody needs. And COVID for All has written to the Australian government, calling for an additional $250 million to be dedicated to the COVAX mechanism, arguing the global vaccine effort is dangerously off-track, unfair and unjust. UN data shows, while vaccination rates in high-income countries are 67%, the figure is just 11% across low-income countries. Costello told The Guardian nobody would be safe from coronavirus until everybody was. When the government says, I am protecting you, look how many people are vaccinated, soon we will have enough rapid antigen tests. Former members question culture of venue church, a Chattanooga megachurch in crisis. Ron Phillips Sr., a pillar of the Chattanooga religious landscape and pastor emeritus of Abba's House, stepped onto the Sunday morning stage of a church in crisis. Venue church needs to begin to pray for what's next, not for what's been, Phillips told the congregation. But the sins of the past appear to be undoing the Chattanooga megachurch. A church that years ago was among the fastest-growing houses of worship in the nation now struggles to attract a few dozen people to a service on a given Sunday. Ushers with flashlights still directed people to available seats, despite two-thirds of the roughly 150 cushioned chairs being unfilled at 9 a.m. in the nearly 47,000-square-foot building. A video introducing volunteer opportunities at the church played for nearly 40 seconds without sound. A similar awkward silence filled the auditorium between worship songs. The Abba's house pastor filled the preaching void left by venue's charismatic lead pastor, Tavner Smith, who remains on sabbatical a month after nearly all staff at his church quit before Christmas over concerns about Smith's leadership and an alleged affair with a staff member. The alleged infidelity and fallout from the staff leaving, first reported by the Chattanooga Times Free Press, spurred sometimes mocking national and international media coverage, along with a flurry of online criticism as former church members discussed their experiences. Phillips, a venue board member and overseer of the church, preached about the blessing of Abraham on January 23. He told congregants to not always believe things they read on social media and said he partnered with Venue Church years ago when the megachurch was a rising star in American Christianity because he knew demonic forces would try to attack Smith's ministry. How Breyer's replacement could reshape court's liberal wing. Justice Stephen Breyer Stephen Breyer senators give glimpse into upcoming Supreme Court nomination battle White House rebukes GOP senator who said Biden's Supreme Court pick beneficiary of affirmative action what does it mean to have a Supreme Court that looks like America? 
Moore's upcoming departure from the Supreme Court hands President Biden Joe Biden Congress in jeopardy of missing shutdown deadline Senate to get Ukraine, Russia briefing on Thursday as Social Security field offices reopen, it's time to expand and revitalize them more the chance to tap a replacement who is expected to bring youth, diversity, and a more liberal outlook than the retiring 83-year-old jurist known for his unique brand of judicial modesty and pragmatism. The seating of Biden's nominee, who he has said would be the country's first black female justice, will not fundamentally shift the balance of the 6-3 conservative majority court. But replacing Breyer with a justice who is ideologically to his left could reshape the three-member liberal minority and alter the court in more subtle ways. I think it likely that whoever is appointed will likely be more liberal than Justice Breyer, who often had a decidedly conservative bent, said Dan Koble, a law professor at Capital University, who described Breyer overall as mildly progressive. Biden announced Breyer's retirement Thursday at a White House event, saying he planned to pick a nominee before the end of February. The president also said he would seek input on his judicial selection from a variety of sources, including senators from both parties, legal academia and Vice President Harris, while standing firm on his 2020 campaign pledge to nominate the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. I've made no decision except one, the person I will nominate will be someone with extraordinary qualifications, character experience and integrity," Biden said. A glimpse of a new economic cycle. The U.S. stock market is setting up to fall for a fourth straight week, the first time this will have happened since early fall 2020. Amid the dour talk on financial news programs, though, all is not entirely negative. We got a trifecta of information this week from the Fed, from the latest economic growth numbers and from a new inflation release. There was also a batch of important corporate earnings reports, including from tech giants Apple AAPL, and Microsoft MSFT. What they all seem to clarify, with a few important caveats, is that the current economic cycle is going to look different from the last one in some important ways. Where in the cycle are we? There has been some manner of debate among economists as to whether we can even talk about being in a new cycle, different from the one that ran from the end of the financial crisis in early 2009 to the pandemic in March 2020. That cycle was punctuated by the very briefest of recessions, lasting all of two months from March to May and then washed away by the tsunami of new money from both fiscal relief and easy monetary policy. So, we had 11 years of growth, already the longest continuous recovery on record, punctuated by a brief killing of the switch with the lockdown, and then back to growth. But what the recession lacked in duration it certainly made up for in depth, with record levels of decline in both real GDP and in jobs. That adds a magnitude of complexity to trying to figure out where in the cycle we are now. Consider the jobs market. The chart below shows the labor market trend over four economic cycles, prior to the pandemic, going back to 1980. The green trend line here shows the unemployment rate. You can see that this rate falls slowly over the course of the growth cycle and then rises quickly early in a recession, the gray vertical bars represent US recessionary periods. Revealed, how fake passports allow IS members to enter Europe and US. A booming online industry specializing in fake passports with official visas and travel stamps is offering people with links to Islamic State the opportunity to leave Syria and travel onwards to the UK, EU, Canada and the US, a Guardian investigation has found. One such network, run by an Uzbek with extremist links living in Turkey, is now selling high-quality fake passports for up to $15,000 
11,132 pounds, purporting to be from various countries. In at least 10 cases The Guardian is aware of, people who illegally crossed the Syrian border into Turkey have used his products to depart through Istanbul airport. Sellers claim the EU is the most popular destination but say in at least two cases people were able to travel from Istanbul to Mexico on fake Russian passports and, from there, illegally over the border into the US. Niger and Mauritania are also popular destinations, as are Ukraine and Afghanistan. The Uzbek's business is doing so well he recently opened a new channel on the encrypted messaging app Telegram with the official sounding name, Istanbul Global Consulting. The growing trade suggests that dangerous extremists could be slipping under the radar of security services around the world, escaping justice for past crimes and potentially able to continue terrorist activity in countries other than Syria. I do not ask about which group someone is with. I am willing to work with anyone, the Uzbek said in a message chat with The Guardian, which posed as an interested client. It is not my job to see who is bad and who is not. The security services should deal with it. Western security officials warned in 2015 that IS had managed to obtain significant equipment such as blank passport books and printers to make Syrian and Iraqi passports, which it used to disguise operatives among the more than 1 million people who fled to Europe during the peak of the refugee crisis. Indiana women's basketball has much more it wants to prove. Indiana women's basketball made its deepest run ever in last season's NCAA tournament, reaching the Elite Eight before falling to Arizona. But despite that program breakthrough, the team was far from satisfied. It hurt, guard Ollie Patberg says. We lost, and none of us are good losers. Patberg, a sixth-year senior at the time, was faced with the decision of whether she would use her last year of eligibility or move on from college hoops over half a decade after she started. But Patberg justified her decision quite easily. I love to win, she says. Knowing that her four fellow starters would be returning for the 2021-22 season, and that her team had proven to itself and the nation that it can hang with and beat the best, like number one NC State, who IU upset in the Sweet 16, Patberg followed suit with the hopes of accomplishing what she first set out to do seven years ago, win a championship. The Hoosiers have managed to build off last season's success in their 14-2 start to this year. Their only losses came to top 10 opponents NC State and defending national champ Stanford by just eight and three points, respectively. They've earned three wins against ranked opponents and have coasted to a 6-0 start in Big Ten play, including their first win in program history over Maryland, the conference champion six of the last seven years. The victory propelled Indiana to the top of the Big Ten and number six in the nation. If you're in the Big Ten, your barometer is Maryland, head coach Terry Morin says. They've always been the team that everybody has chased. The Maryland win was significant for our program. But while the Hoosiers have been in control of their destiny throughout the season, they are now in uncharted territory, especially in the Morin era. Red America's favorite sport is at war with its fans. By now, a certain amount of meme-driven absurdity is an expected feature of national politics. But one last-minute 2021 development tested even the savviest, or most resigned, observer. The launch of Let's Go Brandon Coin, a meme coin for cryptocurrency enthusiasts who happen to have an affinity for the anti-Biden catchphrase, as well as patriotism and love for flag of United States, according to its garbled Twitter bio. 
For those not up to speed with either right-wing slang or the frequently incomprehensible world of digital, stonks, it was easy, let's be honest, desirable, to roll one's eyes and keep scrolling. But for one subset of American culture, that wasn't an option, fans of NASCAR, which finds itself embroiled in an unlikely controversy over the joke currency. The sport most strongly associated with, and beloved by, Red America has barred a planned sponsorship deal between one of its drivers and the coin, and NASCAR now finds itself unexpectedly at odds with one of its up-and-coming stars, a large segment of its own fans, and the right-wing media ecosystem itself. The controversial catchphrase in question, a bodlerization of fuck Joe Biden, has burned itself indelibly into that ecosystem, inspiring rallies, demonstrations on the House floor, and even a potshot at the Brandon administration from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Over the last few months of 2021, Let's Go Brandon was inescapable, not least for Brandon Brown, the actual 28-year-old racecar driver the phrase somewhat meaninglessly references. He wrote an op-ed in Newsweek attempting to come to terms with the controversy, avoiding a partisan stance while expressing sympathy for those angry with the Biden administration and suggesting a sunnier, almost touchingly earnest substitute catchphrase, let's go America. Qatar, US, half a century of strategic relations, continuous consultation. HH the Emir Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad Al Thani begun today a working visit to the friendly United States of America, within the framework of the growing strategic relations and the continuous consultation between Doha and Washington. During the visit, His Highness will meet with he the President of the United States of America Joe Biden at the White House to discuss aspects of developing the existing strategic cooperation between the two countries in various fields and exchange views on regional issues and the most prominent international developments. The visit constitutes a new step on the road to building and strengthening strategic cooperation and continuous consultation between the two leaderships and the two friendly countries to serve their common goals and interests, and contribute to achieving regional stability, security, and global peace. In a clear indication of the distinguished role played by the state of Qatar under the leadership of HH the Emir on the international scene. His Highness' visit to the U.S. coincides with the two countries' preparations to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic relations between them in 1972, while that the historical roots of the informal relations between them date back to the 30s of the last century with the beginning of the emergence of oil in the Arabian Gulf region. Since that date, bilateral relations have remained friendly and solid, based on trust, mutual respect, and common benefits, and in continuous development to serve the interests of the two countries, the region, and global and regional peace and stability. To strengthen these relations, HH the Emir's visits to the US have become permanent and continuous and enjoy a great deal of importance and welcome from various American circles. Buying travel to impact social good. When Siemens UK travel commodity manager Emma Eaton visited business travel show Europe in London last year, she stayed at a different hotel than the other hosted by her visitors. Eaton checked herself into Good Hotel London, a property she had recently added to Siemens' preferred supplier list not only because it meets the company's quality and price standards, but also because it is a social enterprise. Social enterprises are businesses that allocate at least 50% of profits for philanthropy, such as training and supporting disadvantaged people. In most cases, including Good Hotel's parent Good Group, the figure is 100%. All Good Group profits fund Niños de Guatemala, a foundation providing education to 500 children in Central America. Good Hotel London also provides a training program for long-term unemployed people in Newham, 
the borough where it is located and one of the poorest in the UK. Eaton is one of a tiny but growing number of travel and meetings managers aiming to buy social, a phrase she defines as, the opportunity for corporates to use their purchasing power to do good. Instead of just using our purchasing volume through traditional routes, it's looking at buying from the many wonderful organizations which exist to improve the lives of people who need some help. Another convert is Faye Carter, London-based head of experiential at Deloitte. Like Siemens, Deloitte is one of 30 large corporations to have joined the Buying Social Corporate Challenge, which aims to get them spending £1 billion annually through social enterprises. Deloitte has already used Connection Crew, a community interest company which employs, trains and generally supports homeless people, to build stages and provide other support at events. It also hired Luminary Bakery, which trains and employs socially disadvantaged women, for a virtual, bake-along, as a Christmas staff activity. Backers or criminal justice bill would create job housing stability. Advocates for criminal justice reform are continuing their effort to change the system during Oregon's upcoming legislative session. Senate Bill 1510 aims to reduce interactions with law enforcement, a move that proponents see as vital for the safety of people of color. Babak Zalfagari Azar is a community advocate and board member for the Partnership for Safety and Justice. He said the bill is part of their work to change the criminal justice system in the wake of George Floyd's murder by Minneapolis police. Zalfagari Azar recalled his own experiences with police. If the policies that are included in this bill had been in place, then I likely wouldn't be living with those experiences, said Zalfagari Azar. So it's really a matter of imagining how many fewer people would have those concerns or have those unnecessary criminal records. The bill would make stops for offenses such as a broken tail light or brake light a secondary offense, meaning it can't be the only reason for pulling someone over. It also requires law enforcement notify people of their right to consent to a search during a stop. The legislation also includes changes for people on parole, prevent some workplace visits by probation officers and enabling some people to report remotely for parole and probation. Zalfagari Azar said this would eliminate some of the obstacles to jobs and housing people face after leaving incarceration.